Today's guest on the podcast is Sam Shahapurkar. Sam is the founder of Awesome AI, a consultancy that helps companies use AI to derive greater efficiency. Before starting his own company, Sam was the head of AI and machine learning at FICO in Iron Mountain. We talked about a wide range of topics from technology to philosophy, but three of the real interesting ones that I found fascinating were the importance of guardrails and preventing unintended consequences with AI applications, the importance of prioritizing curiosity over judgment, and the fact that knowledge is dead, but creativity is alive and well. I hope you enjoy today's episode. Sam, thanks for coming on today. Good, thank you. So take me back. How did you first get involved in artificial intelligence or AI? So my first job was in uh, was in databases. So I started looking at the data and I felt, well, this, this is raw. Unless you process it, no one can make uh, any sense of it. And then my background was actually in nonlinear controls. And it turns out nonlinear controls have the same or very similar math as uh, neural networks. So when I came to the States for uh, my graduate studies, I jumped from uh, nonlinear controls to neural networks, and since then grown into whatever the latest form of uh, it is. I'd love to actually go even further back in terms of just your background. And, and obviously, it's interesting because now you're just uh, so involved in artificial intelligence and, and so forth. But like, what kinds of things were you interested in as a kid? Oh, I always wanted to be an engineer. Ever since I'm, I was uh, conscious of myself, I wanted to be an engineer. As I grew, I wanted to be aeronautical engineer and join uh, ISRO, which is ISRO, which is, which is India's uh, NASA and uh, the space program and so on. As I grew, I also dabbled in architecture because I'm a very visual thinker and I like uh, design and beauty uh, and so on. So... Then the question uh, was, well, how do you kind of uh, merge those two? Because honestly, working for ISRO wasn't uh, lucrative and I couldn't have studied and worked in the 90s uh, in India. That was near impossible. So I, I came here to study, but always wanted to be an engineer. Started with aspirations of aeronautics and now in AI and gladly so. So how has AI evolved over the years? I mean, I remember just some of our, our first conversations about it, but if you don't mind just giving a really brief just history lesson in terms of where AI started and where we are today. Well, ever since, uh, you know, almost humans have been conscious uh, and, and, you know, gone down the scientific path, there has been visions of a machine replicating what a human does for lots of reasons, right? And the early AI, in fact, was a, a person sitting, you know, in a box, and, and operating levers to play chess or something of that sort. And this was way back, you know, the 1800s and so on. So the idea has existed, you know, for a long time. And, and some of the theory even formed before computers came into being that could implement. So, so you'll find, you know, papers uh, in the 1920s and 40s talking about some of these concepts. But yeah, once computers became accessible and scalable, that's when it took off. The early AI was uh, rules-based, so it was essentially, you know, if uh, this happens, then you do this, uh, and so on. And then, uh, you know, it was they were called expert systems, and a lot of uh, bombastic claims were made around them, but they could only do so much. They could only go so far. 
And the next kind of uh, step came when neural networks started becoming easier to implement with, with the computation increasing and more, more slow taking effect, which is, you know, the processing power of a chip will double every 18 months and it cost will go to half. So that's Moore's kind of a uh, law that everyone, that, that's helped us grow really. So 90s was the neural networks. And that peak happened. And then again, you know, a lot of claims, but then it leveled off. People lost interest. And then the internet and the web became the thing. And then now this is, uh, I think I would th- say third or fourth wave where it is again coming to people's being. But all this while it's been used. It's just that it's come into popular focus and then died away. But that has not prevented its continued use in the background, you know, away from the populace. Even in the mainframes, there have been expert systems with rules, which till recently were deciding whether you get the loan or not using uh, expert system. And they are even, they, they are even used today. They've gone to AWS and the cloud. That expert system still decides whether you get a loan or not. It's not neural networks or AI that does it. And it's from the, it's from the fifties, I would like to say fifties, sixties. Yeah. Uh, so AI has been used forever. Yeah. What are neural networks just for the the average person? Like, what does that actually mean? So it's it's uh, you know it's inspired by the neurons in our brain. You know, the the fundamental unit of computation or connection is the neuron in our own brains, and it's nothing but a kind of signal comes in, and then it changes a little bit and then spread out. Right? It kind of almost works like a rumor, but in a good way. So you hear a rumor, right? And, and then you apply your own thinking or interpretation to it and then tell five of your friends and it goes on and on and on, right? So now, now you can think about it like, okay, if that happens, then you will actually at end of the day build a whole story or a novel from those different rumors. You could do that, right? So that's ex- exactly how neural networks work. It, they're all connected to one another. And sometimes these these people who have heard the rumor will talk to one another and that will cause a different kind of rumor and go. And then it, it will develop its own intelligence. It's, it's also known as memes, right? Uh, the, the memes are, you know, all spreading and go fast. So that's how it works, except it's, you know, written as a computer program. And instead of feeding it rumors, you, you are feeding it data from the past saying, okay, when this, this and this happened, this also happened. For example, if the conditions were like this, then it rained. If the conditions were like this, it did not rain. And you collect several data points, let's say every year since 1800, and you feed that to a neural network. And then you have a predicting machine that can kind of say, okay, uh, based on all these measurements I take today, is it going to rain or not? So that's at, at a simple level. That's uh, what it does. Yeah, I'd love just to to fast forward to today. And it's interesting how in the last several years, you know, even kids know the word or phrase supply chain. And now it's almost like macroeconomics are sexy again because of all the issues with inflation and, and so forth. And now it's like, you know, the next term that just is in our vernacular is generative AI. And I would just love just to just in your words, I mean, how do you define generative AI? I think people say it without really understanding what it actually means. And they're using some of the different tools that are out there. But like, what exactly is generative AI? And how does that connect back to the concept of the neural networks that you talked about? You know, we, we in the colloquial terms, we, we attach AI to everything. But, 
if you go in real specific terms, not every model is AI and not every AI is a model uh, or neural network. Even a machine learning, the AI I told you about, uh, which decides whether you're going to get a loan or not, that's an expert system, but it's an AI. It's not a machine learning based AI. Okay, so coming back to your question about a generative AI. So if you make this neural network really large and tune it and give it some sense of history and memory, and it can be done by uh, several things, like, you know, you start making connections, feedback connections, like they are in our brain. So you have a memory, and then you also have kind of the logic encoded in that memory, you know, again, by giving it all kinds of data and mucking around with the different connections in the neurons, the number of neurons you are using. And then what it can then do is it can generate new ideas. That's kind of what the creative part of our brain also does. It has the memory, it has the current conditions, and then if it sees a gap or a, or a discard or a disconnect, it tries to make sense of it. And, and when trying to make sense of it, it invents things. And sometimes the invent things are spectacular and sometimes they are even detrimental. And why I say that is re- really the brain is coming up with lies to fill in the gaps. Lies in the sense th- that might not exist today, but you come up with it as if it exists today and, and then you go build it. So generative AI is exactly like that. It generates new ideas which are as much as possible grounded in the past experience, but then it fills the little gap and connects. And, and that's the reason you hear uh, these, these generative uh, AI models hallucinating. That's another name for creativity, but it can be also lies. That's fascinating in a definitely an interesting way. I never heard that the thought about it being like more like hallucinating. So tell us a little bit more. I just would love just to know, I think people are just generally familiar with chat GPT, but I actually want to pause on that and just, just talk to us about like what chat GPT is and how people are starting to use that technology in just in the different applications. Chat GPT actually puts together three technologies which have in fact existed for a while, perhaps not at this scale and speed, but it is essentially your generative AI model or transformer. And then on top of it, it is a large language model and then uh, interface that is natural language uh, friendly. So in concept, these are, you know, separate things that existed. What is uh, new about ChatGPT is they have, they have very well combined all of these things to make one machine, right? Or AI, if you like it, that you can ask questions and it gives you most of the times intelligent uh, answers. So, like the concept I told you earlier of generating AI. Now, the generating AI is good, but what if you had to just feed it codes, right? Or just words like you do in a Google search, then it would still not be appealing. So it, it needs to understand natural language and get the context of what you're saying. So that's why sometimes you need to give a few prompts and so on. So that's, that's the advancement that is happening. And whereas OpenAI, you know, kind of uh, released it, uh, was brave enough or rash enough to release it and, you know, uh, make, uh, allow access to everyone. A lot of people were working in it, a lot of companies. And that's why you see, you know, soon after they released it, you have Bard and IBM releases something else and all that. They can't release it overnight uh, if they were not already working on it. 
but I think they were trying to be more careful or something or testing it more. It's ChatGPT was released. Now it can be used in many ways and also abused in many ways or misused rather. Used in many ways, you can use it as a, a lot of, uh, as, as a, uh, in fact, uh, called a co-pilot, right? You can think of it as a co-pilot or a, or a little whisperer in your ear. Uh, you can use it also as a uh, what is called buddy uh, code. So let's say you're you're trying to write something, right? You have random thoughts. Let's say you want to write a book. You have some thoughts and ideas, and you pen down the ideas. Now to put that in a in a beautiful form, which is effective to get across your idea, you kind of have to work at it and and have to have experience in it. But you can substitute that experience with ChatGPT because it has it has been trained on all the data, you know, pre-2020, 2019 or 21, I don't remember the date, but it kind of brings that experience to the table and you can give it these ideas which are your own and then use it to frame it into a beautiful set of paragraphs or something like that. So that's one. Uh, similarly with code, right, at the end of the day, even computer code is a language in which we speak to the computer. So you can you can do it, you know, for, for writing code as well. So these are the two, you know, kind of very fundamental applications. But then you can build on top of that. You can say, okay, I'm going to uh, feed it patient summaries and uh, ask me to suggest what are the possible diagnoses. And, and then the doctor may go and pick one of them, right? But in any of these, we have to remember that at least today, a human has to be in the loop of trying to use this. If you are trying to fully automate it, then you have to carefully think about the intended and unintended consequences because it's still in beta. It still hallucinates or makes up lies. So you cannot always rely on it, right? Now, some people argue, well, humans are also like that. Yeah, yes, but the liability increases when you when you kind of put it in that place. And, and many, many more applications. But yeah, you would want people who know building those applications, not people who know the impact. It's definitely powerful. I kind of say that it is, it is a nuclear power plus, uh, your, your uh, social network reach put together. It's as powerful or even more than that. So we need, we need guidance from uh, regulators and all that and, and checks and balances. So we protect ourselves from misusers. I'd love to get to that in a minute, but just, I'm just curious in terms of the scale of the, the data set. In my mind, I'm just imagining this database of information that's crawled every corner of the internet and every book that's out there in, in human history. Like how robust is that data set? Just like, and is that continuing to be crawled and continuing to be added to? Or what, like, how does it even work and what does that look like? Yes, it, they have tried to get all of the data from everywhere possible, but no attempt necessarily has to be, has been made to validate the sources. So, you know, people writing rants or, you know, unsupported things, if that has been repeated several times, it's influenced by how many times it's been repeated. So if it has been repeated a lot of times, then it would influence the model. And that's what the model would think. So in some corners of the model, you could brainwash it, right? If, if you, if you tell it enough times, that data enough times, but you are right. It is, it's an entire 
internet and whatever else they could get hold of from a perspective of books and everything so everything is everything is being used to train it your second part of your question is that being updated and the, the answer is no and it's not trivial to update it that will require a lot of effort and it's something called continuous training so many people think as they are feeding information into chat gpt and they're chatting the model is learning no it's not learning it's just narrowing down the context so it seems as if it's learning but it's just narrowing down the con- context just like you would by adding more search terms on google but google's search engine behind this things is not changing similarly chat gpt itself is not changing it's just narrowing down uh, the context as you chat with it but also there's <laughs> another but the free version at least as you put in your information that information is being captured so that the next version when they come out they can use that to narrow down and make it better or make it you know more fine tuned to what people are asking it and then if you happen to give it confidential information that will go into training the thing there is only if a lot of people give that confidential information will it really affect the model so that's not the risk but you know you could have other risks associated with uh, giving it confidential information so i i would stay away from that if you're using it it's interesting i think the perception is you're training this thing you know it right and i love the way you just clarify in terms of actually you're just narrowing the context you're narrowing the, the set of possibilities i just be curious also is it it seems like this thing just came out of nowhere and you mentioned that many companies were working on this is I'm just curious, like, how did this just seem to just, it literally, it felt like a binary switch of like, this didn't exist. And suddenly it just existed, just maybe just as me, a general consumer of it. How did this even develop and where did it come from? That's the exact feeling I had when when Google released search. And this was, I think, 99 or something like that. I'm dating myself here. But I remember one late night, I was uh, sitting in the lab in front of a Sun uh, Microsystems computer. And, and then suddenly I, I saw an email pop up saying, Hey, have you looked at this search, new search thing called Google? And I clicked on it and typed a couple of search terms. And there it was the result I was actually looking for instead of Yahoo. Right. So, but the technology was being prepared behind the scenes. As I said before, a lot of people were working on it. There was a lot of research material that went into it over last few years. And just the number of researchers that are, that have entered the field in the last five to seven years has created a boom of, of research in that. And when certain types of models called LSTMs, uh, and, and so on came up, they were all making progress. But what these guys did is, is two things. They put a lot of these things together. They melded it very well and they used a huge data set and then they, had the guts part to just release it. Uh, so that's why it, uh, it, it, it looks very sudden, but it's, it's the, the research has been going on and even creating something efforts have been going on for a long time. If you remember chatbots became very first became the thing and then people started, you know, not liking them. And now it's become almost a common kind of thing to, you know, expect a chat bubble at the side of any website or whatever that customer service is there, right? Those are chatbots. Those have an AI model behind them. It's just that their AI model is narrowed 
to th- what their business is. It's caught on like any viral thing. And I, that I have no explanation what turns viral and what not. I'll date myself with you in terms of the Google reference. I remember using Lycos and Hotbot and Yahoo, obviously. It just suddenly I remember doing this, the, the individual searches on the different search engines. And now it's just one tool, which brings me to the current day, which is you have these different tools that you referenced how different is it? Do they have the same data set? Is there some agreed upon data set that all these different tools are using or is it depends on which tool you're actually using? So now that, you know, this has become viral, everyone is coming up with their own GPT. Like for example, Salesforce released one with data from 15,000 of their employees. They gave a bunch of data, those 15,000 employees labeled or gave answer and they... Now it's, it's kind of the opinion of 15,000 employees from Salesforce if you know any of these corporate, they, they're probably indoctrined to a certain extent. <laughs> so, so that is a full-fledged model that you can, you know, simply send messages to. And, and there is a lot of options in terms of GPTs. There's, there's a GPT. This is for language, but there is a GPT for images. There is a GPT for tables and, and whatnot. And there is a GPT for medical things. There is a whole bunch of them. And some are trained and others come as raw skeleton that you can just put your data into and train it for whatever you are doing. So if you move forward, I mean, this this episode could get dated quite quickly and imagine it will. But like, what's the what's the future? What's next? I mean, I'm just imagining as you're talking about the medical example and just so many other different applications that could be used. Like, what do you think is next more in the near term? So near term, now that it has kind of gone viral, of course, you know, first application let me backtrack a bit and, and uh, you know, kind of summarize our previous conversations. Yes, all these existed, but and these guys put it together uh, and put it together really well. And I think for the first time, we are able to talk to machines or computers in our language quite effectively and intelligently instead of us having to learn the computer's language. So if, if you know, you know, any of the computer's language, C or Python or you name it, right? Java or whatever it is. So that is the computer's language. And, and we tell it in that language that is code and then it does stuff for us. But now has come a time when we can tell it something in our language and it can figure out the context. I wouldn't say understand because it's not understanding anything. It could narrow down the context and then give us an answer or perform something. So it is an inflection point, like you said. So we are going to see rapid growth in it. Just like when first uh, social networks came along, there were there were some of them, MySpace, Orkut, and all that. People played with it and stuff. That's, I would call, the previous two, three years. And and now it's really Facebook. It's, it's become Facebook. So it's, it's going to go, it's already going viral. So a lot of people are going to use it for a lot of different things. Uh, you know, just like Facebook, meeting people, connecting with people, advertising. So it's, it becomes this village, uh, market square where, where a lot of things are exchanged, traded and all that, right? So you'll see it used in uh, all different aspects and, and new applications come out, but it would also have unintended consequences like we had with the effects of uh, social networks on our life. So it's it's going to affect our life in ways that y- you can only imagine or speculate. But uh, I bet it's going to be wilder than <laughs> anyone's speculation. So 
in terms of its importance it's like uh, google has happened it, it is similar to what google did to search what facebook did to social networks what iphone did to smartphones it's an inflection point and and a lot of exciting things but also some unintended consequences and possibilities of misuse that we need to be cautious about yeah it's interesting you see just like the plagiarizing and it makes me think about obviously as someone who writes content professionally is is what is the nature of creativity right it's like whether it's illegal or unethical i mean that's probably a conversation for a different time but i just be curious from your perspective you you mentioned just regulators and you know that that's sort of like a, a scary term for a lot of people and, and a lot of some of the tech luminaries have come out publicly and saying hey we need to we need to tap the brakes on this or or fully you know pull the e-brake on this thing but in terms of some of the guardrails, like what do you suggest? I know several years ago when I met you, you had an incredible soundbite where you said something along the lines of, you know, privacy is dead, long live ethics. And it feels like we're in another one of those moments in terms of this thing just, it just came out of the box so fast and it feels like it's just replicating at such a, you know, unprecedented pace. Like in terms of some of those guardrails, like what are your thoughts around what needs to happen so that this can actually truly be a productive tool for business and for humanity. I'm trying to create a certain soundbite and luckily for us, it came to my mind. So the, the soundbite is knowledge is dead, long live creativity. So a lot of our creativity was dependent on our past experiences and uh, knowledge that we had, especially in the knowledge dominant fields. But now we can very easily harness a knowledge. So we need to just have the right questions in our mind, curiosity, then all the knowledge is at our fingertips and then we can apply our creativity to it. So essentially knowledge bank that we used to have in our brain is kind of now redundant. But when I say knowledge bank, it is very coarse because your experiences, right? The emotions that you went through when experiencing your life, ChatGPT cannot do that because it can. It, it has no sense of emotions. It's you know, it seems as if it has, but it, it'll make you think that it has by just you know language tricks, but it doesn't. So knowledge is dead. Long live creativity. Long live emotional intelligence, and so on. If I could uh, <clears throat> extend it a little bit, you also asked what are the safeguards and all that. So there is a regulation part of the safeguard, right? Which we, which our representatives need to think about. There is a collective uh, psyche about this that also need to think about. So a lot of people are saying, and I honestly believe it, that we need to have more psychologists, philosophers involved in discussing the impact or thinking about the impact of this on humans and also participating in the progress of these models. It is time for others to become part of the creation of these models. Don't just leave it to computer scientists because, you know, a lot of them sit in a cube and code and, and you don't want them to make moral judgments when they're, uh, when they're <laughs> writing the code. <laughs> they, they will just toss a coin and say, okay, go for it. So that's the part when uh, is, is where companies need to invite um, make it easy for them to contribute to creation of future models, interfaces, applications, and all that. So, yeah, if you if you know Aristotle, 
OpenAI might be interested in uh, uh, them. We did the past thing for stem cell research, which really didn't have, and, and you know, uh, genetics research when, when they, they, they cloned Dolly and all that, right? And, and that became viral. But a lot of that is being used, but after some thought and, and safeguards that were put into place. Although at that time I, I thought, oh, you know, this is not democratic to put a, put a moratorium on it and all that. That was my thought then. But now I think, yes, we need to tap the brakes, put a little thought into it before going, right? And uh, unfortunately, we did not do that with, uh, with nuclear power because we are in a war zone, we are keeping secrets from one another. But I think this needs to be a global discussion. It's not enough if it's a uh, national discussion. It reminds me of a, a conversation you and I had just several years ago, just in terms of just the importance of judgment and who makes a decision. You talked about just a, an autonomous vehicle making a decision if uh, someone's crossing the street and you either swerve and you miss the person and you crash into a pylon, obviously causing damage to the driver, or you hit the person, the pedestrian that's in the road. And, and then just that that idea of judgment that just that just blew me away at the time. I hadn't thought about that. And it's, it just brings to mind, what if you give the Teslas of the world, the, the car manufacturers of the world, that power essentially to make the decision it just makes me realize, to your point about this needs to be a global discussion that involves the Aristotles of the world and some of the big thinkers and so forth. But just the tech is there mostly. It's just a matter of how we actually apply it and how we apply good judgment to it. But it's not... Uh... I, I, yeah, so I was really taken aback when some of these uh, uh, bigger players uh, fired their uh, ethics uh, groups. Uh, that's not a good sign. <laughs> yeah, it makes you wonder how decisions are actually getting made and just to bubble this back up to a broader discussion. And are they are they getting rid because they are slowing, you know, the progress of the release? Because it's it's uh, really kind of, uh, you know, the, uh, the Cold War or one upon the other, right? So open AI really is then barred and this and that and other. Everyone is in a rush to say me too. It's like bringing uh, attorneys into a business conversation. It's just, you know, feels like you're trying to make a decision w with the e-break on. Nothing against attorneys are obviously needed, but, you know, it's, it's challenging when you have to worry about every possible risk under the sun and that absolutely slows creativity and definitely slows your speed. So what's the biggest misconception of generative AI or just even AI in general? Just because there's the word intelligence in it, it's not necessarily intelligent. Some people argue, well, it depends on the you know definition of intelligence or something like that. They cannot feel. So, you know, it's still a machine. It's still at the, you know, at the back end of it, it's still code. It's still zeros and ones. And those don't have any emotions. So, if you have a conversation on chat GPT and it starts giving you advice on emotions and feelings, shut it down and, and go talk to your therapist kind of thing. So it doesn't have feelings. It doesn't have emotions. It does not understand you. So if I were to say in one sentence what the, the misconception is, always remember it does not understand you. Yeah, it's funny is, is I uh, actually start using please in some of these tools, right? It's like as if t trying to have that level of decorum like you would talking to somebody else. So it's it's kind of funny. It'd be funny to be a, a fly on the wall and watch how people are actually using the tools. Hey, can you please provide me six alternatives to this or whatnot? That I think you should still do as, as practice. I, I wouldn't going around. It's probably just me, but I, I wouldn't go around throwing my laptop everywhere because 
things are made out of resources and resources are precious. So you kind of have to respect uh, all of that. <laughs> so I would say continue saying please. Yeah. It's kind of like just how we use some of these technologies and we use Slack and things and we shorten our messages and people definitely, the younger generations get accused of this. I think, I think we're all equally guilty of this, but using abbreviations in shorthand and we start to actually apply that in other mediums and it tends to really reduce our communication quality. Yeah. So, so a quick uh, opinion here. I, I, I seem to have opinions on everything, but I, I like the way you summon Siri versus Alexa. So for Siri, you have to say, hey, Siri. So there is a hey, but Alexa is just Alexa. So you need a, to make special effort to put a please at the end. And, and that's why Apple is Apple and they're good at design. So one of the things we talked about recently is you talked about this, this step function. You described also what's happening with generative AI and, and it obviously eventually levels off is as you look into your crystal ball, like what do you think is the the next thing that comes beyond this? I think, you know, we talked in the past about everyone's worried about from the Terminator movies and Skynet and, you know, the fear that just comes up. But like, what do you think is the next wave of the application of artificial intelligence beyond what's happening right now? If we are uh, sensible about it, it will have the impact that electricity had on us. If we are foolish about it, it will have the impact that nuclear energy had had on us, right? Or, or nuclear uh, nuclear science essentially had on us. And first tastes are important. First impressions are important uh, for the for humans in general. We like to say we are beyond that and all that. No, but they are really important. First impressions. So the nuclear science, the first impression it really left was bomb, right? And and so even though nuclear energy can be safely used and has a lot less risk than you going out and driving your car on the road. We are not using it. It's a, it's a one-shot solution to climate change. Just, just build nuclear plants uh, and, and figure out how to take care of the rest. So it really depends what we do. At the end of the day, a technology is a technology tool is a tool. Are, are you going to throw the axe at someone or are you going to you know use it to make furniture kind of thing? It's up to us. It's not up to the AI. But uh, if ever, I'm saying if, it'll never happen. I can I can stipulate that. But if ever the robots are going to take over the world, I'll root for the robots because uh, they, they'll probably have more logical sense than what we are doing. It, it just makes me think as you make that comment about nuclear energy and you could apply that to anything with AI or whatnot. It's just, it's the importance of just asking questions just in terms of how things can be applied, how should they apply how can we put guide rails and safeguards and just versus I think we just tend to discard things in people and ideas. We just, we want to put a label and a judgment on things. It just, it just reminds me of just the importance of taking a step back and, and continuing to ask questions. It reminds me of a, a person I interviewed for my, for my book. He had um, had this idea of creating these apps based on Dr. Seuss's books. And he immediately went to, Hey, like this won't work. And he asked the question, him and his wife, how might this work, right? So it's like the importance of asking a question versus saying like, will this work? Like, yeah, the, it's easy to shoot down those ideas. It just, it just reminds me of just the importance of of taking a step back and looking for how we can be applying these things versus taking more of a narrow-minded approach. You know, I would describe it in two ways. And I think a wise person once told me, be curious instead of being judgmental to a lot of things to your self-image, to the idea you get, 
if you find yourselves being judgmental, take a step back and see if you can approach it with curiosity. And and that uh, I think is uh, is one of the things we can do with AI, right? Like you are asking these curious questions. So those curious questions will make the experts think, oh, people care about this. But if you if you don't say that, then the powers to be will decide for you. So uh, it comes back to know what you want. Otherwise, you know, you, you will get what uh, someone else wants. I, I forget that. But uh, yeah, so that's the other thing. Con- uh, curiosity and continue to think, right? I, I think, therefore, I am is still true because ChatGPT can fake intelligence, fake understanding, but we are the only ones who can think. So curiosity and continue to think. And lastly, then forming your place on it. So with AI, the question is not what AI can do for you. The question is, what do you want it to do for you? So then the judgment comes in into you, not into some program. So you decide what the AI wants to do for you. Don't ask what, okay, you tell me what it can, I, you know, you can do for me. So where can people go to learn more about generative AI, some of the tools that are out there? I'm just, I think it'd be really helpful because there's so much noise and perspectives that are out there. Like what's a good place that people can actually go and find out about this stuff? It, it's just openness to quality thought, informed thought, right? About it. And, and Facebook is not the place. Facebook is full of judgments. In fact, I find LinkedIn to be open. So find a few people to follow and also find people who follow those few people, like some people who you respect in the AI or software engineering field will have different opinions, sometimes opposing opinions. Always be careful of extreme opinions, right? If someone gives you an extreme opinion, it is biased usually. Look for a balanced opinion. So you don't have to be a professional to, to create a LinkedIn account uh, or, or you know, even, even uh, you could be retired, you could be stay-at-home parent, anything. You just go create a uh, you know, LinkedIn account and uh, follow some people and, and you'll get some good stuff uh, from there, links to articles, other explanations uh, that you could read to inform yourselves. And here again, I think, you know, the government is there to protect us. That's their, that's their task, right? From, from internal and external, sorry, go ahead, from uh, internal and external enemies or potential enemies. So they need to come out with some information, some guidance on all of this pretty fast. They do that for, you know, they give you guidance on mortgages when you go for it or something. So then yeah, I think they need to do that. Till then, I, I would start with LinkedIn. Well, fantastic. Well, I would suggest following you on LinkedIn. Obviously, you post some interesting and some provocative articles and comments and so forth. But where can people go to find out more about you and what you're up to? And I know you offer yourself up. You love talking about AI and these types of topics. But where's a good place to connect with you? I, I, yeah, LinkedIn would be a good place. I'm just getting on Instagram, so I have a handle. I can leave it with you. But people, you know, if they if they want to post a question or something like that, uh, I can respond. I've stopped using Twitter, but yeah, LinkedIn would be the best place to get uh, get in touch with me. And and there is more information there about my website, about my business, and I often post uh, good articles and resources to which have a balanced view about uh, all these developments. Yeah, so go to LinkedIn, look for. Som Shahapurkar, and you should find you should find me. Awesome, fantastic. Well, thanks, Som. I always appreciate our conversations, and 
a balance of science and technology with philosophy. So I appreciate you sharing uh, your thoughts and taking the time today. Yeah. And, and your, your uh, curiosity is, is what uh, can be role modeled by a lot of people. So thank you. Thank you for uh, always being curious. Yeah.